Well, good morning. Hope you all were able to understand that. I'm sure we have a bunch of fluent speakers of Arabic, Arabic. Yes. So, um, so this is what happens when you give me a week off of preaching. I change everything up. And so we are going to have a little different format this morning, um, but it flows. I pray to God it flows. And um, I think that God's just going to speak through it. So if you'll join me, we'll just go ahead and open up in a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into our message. So Father God, we come before you, and God, we just praise you for who you are. God, we thank you that we are able to gather together this morning and just worship you. God, uh, this is the season to be thankful, um, and so there are so many things to be thankful for, but God, I just want to thank you for your word this morning. And so I just pray that as we open it up, as we read what you have to say, and God, as I speak your word, God, may it be that, remove anything that is not your word and your truth, and just let your truth be revealed, and may it fall on our hearts, and may we be ready to respond, however it is that you're calling us to respond. So God, I pray, speak to us in this time, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this, amen. So December 7th, 1941, a day that will live in infamy. That is the day that Pearl Harbor was attacked, and on that morning, close to eight o'clock in the morning, the Japanese fleet of airplanes came upon Pearl Harbor. They were not expecting it. Even though there was a war that was going on, it seemed pretty calm at home. And then that morning, roughly 2,400 Americans lost their lives. And that is what edged America into World War II. The day, or not really the day, but the time following that, 130,000 Americans answered the call. They volunteered to go and serve our country. They instituted a draft in which many more just were called to come, but 130 said, you know what, there is something at stake here. Our land has just been attacked. We are not at peace. We are at war. And so we are going to rise up and we are going to answer the call. So we will volunteer to go and stand between good and between evil. And then you look again, 70, roughly 70, 60 actually, years later, September 11th, 2001. Again, we feel like we are at a time of peace. And then next thing you know, so many of you that were alive at that time, remember where you were at. You remember how you saw the news. You remember how it impacted you as you saw planes run into the World Trade Center. And then you saw the first one collapse. And then a time after you saw the second one collapse. And after that time, 150,000 Americans volunteered. Again, they saw somebody has attacked our homeland. Over 2,000 people have died again. And so they volunteered themselves to go and fight on behalf of America, on behalf of their families, on behalf of the freedoms, on behalf of you and me. They saw what was at stake. And they said, I'm willing to risk my lives to defend what truly matters. And so this isn't even new. 
It's not a new concept to have bad going up against evil and to have there be these moments where there is this call to action on the lives of people and they say, you know what, I'm going to rise up. I'm going to be the one that steps up and answers the call that is being placed. Edmund Burke has been attributed with saying this. He says, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. For good men to stand back and rumors of a war over there, but you know what, it's not coming here so we can live at peace. Rumors of wars going on in our area, not, not physical wars, but spiritual wars, but you know what, it's not really directly impacting my family, so I don't really have to answer the call. The only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Edmund Burke said that, but it even was applied way before him. During the time of Judah, when Ezekiel is writing to the kingdom of Judah, there is a time in the lives of Judah that good men are doing nothing. That God is speaking to the nation or the kingdom of Judah, and Israel's already fallen. They've already seen that. Babylon has already come in and deported certain people at, in 605 BC, and now they're not doing anything. They're like, you know what? It's not affecting us, really. So we're not going to respond. We're not going to rise up and answer the call. And they did nothing. And so God had a word for the kingdom of Judah. And he spoke it through his prophet Ezekiel. And so we're getting back on our series here of looking at these Old Testament uh, passages and seeing where does, what, first off, what's the context? Because that's important. What is the message of it? But also, how does it point to Jesus? Because these aren't flyover passages. These aren't passages that are like, you know what, that doesn't pertain to me. I'm a New Testament church. I'm a New Testament person. I'll stick with the epistles and the apostles, and I'll forget about the prophets. When really, they point a message to us. They were written for people at their time, but they have a message for us as well today. And so we're going to be in the book of Ezekiel as we see again God giving this call in Ezekiel's time of who's going to answer the call. Because right now it's nobody. And so if you take notes, we'll be in Ezekiel. You have your insert, follow along if you would like. Ezekiel was a prophet, but he was also a priest. We know that about Ezekiel. His name's really only said in the, the uh, prophecy twice, but it's attributed to him. He is a prophet and he is a priest. He was exiled during the second Babylonian deportation. So when he is writing, he is already in Babylon. He has experienced what is going on, that judgment is coming. And look, it's already giving the warning signs. In 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar came in, he deported some of the Jews. Then in 597, he came in on the second time and deported more Jews. And then in 586 BC, Jerusalem just totally fell. They did not heed the warning. And so he is writing when that second deportation has happened. He is in Babylon. He is 30 years old whenever he is called. And also he is a contemporary of Daniel. If you'll remember, Daniel also was exiled. He was exiled during the first deportation in 605. And so like whenever you get to Daniel chapter 3 and, you know, it's like bow down to the statue of gold. And it's like, well, where was Ezekiel during that time? Because we only know of three that did not bow down to it. He's still in Jerusalem. 
It's not for another couple of years before he gets deported to Babylon. But he is a contemporary of Daniel. He prophesied for over 20 years. From 593 B.C. to 571 B.C., we are given specific datings of when he prophesied. And his prophecy is pretty much chronologically. He doesn't jump from theme to theme. He starts with here, he works his way through, and he ends in 571 B.C. He follows along chronologically. He starts out by speaking to the kingdom of Judah. That southern kingdom that is remaining, the northern kingdom has already fallen. And he is speaking to them and he is saying judgment is going to come. Babylon will come and work their way through and you are going to fall. And yet they refuse to repent. And then the middle portion takes place after the fall of Babylon. So no longer talk to Judah. They've already faced their judgment. So then he turns and he speaks to the Gentile nations and he warns them and he prophesies against them. Just because you were used as God's tool does not mean that God is gonna have mercy on you because you are still vessels of wrath. And so God prophesies against the nations of Judah. Sorry, I skipped one. Uh, chronologically, the repeated phrase that you will see through it over 60 times is God saying, I am the Lord. I'm gonna bring my judgment upon Judah so that they will know that I am the Lord. Over and over, I will bring down Babylon so that they will know that I am the Lord. I will build my temple so that they will know I am the Lord. And then 15 times, he says, for my name's sake. He cares about his name. His name is being defamed. His name is being misused and abused and mistreated. And he says, no, I will protect my name. My judgment is coming so that my name will be honored, so that you will know that I am the Lord and I will do it for my name's sake. All right, now back on. So he is prophesying against the Gentiles in the middle portion. And then he ends by prophesying or by, by having this vision of a new temple because the temple is going to be destroyed. And actually what we see in the first part is we see the spirit of God lifting out of the temple. He is like, you know what? I'm washing my hands clean. You all have rejected me. You have turned your hearts against me so that my glory will remove from the temple. And then in the vision of the new temple, we see his, his glory and his spirit re coming back in to the new temple, him returning to the new temple. The outline, we kind of covered it in that, but the first three chapters, you just get the call of Ezekiel, God calling him and saying, come, speak the word that I am to, that I, that I give you to say. And one of the things about Ezekiel's ministry is he is one of few people that had to live out his ministry. When God tells Ezekiel that Jerusalem is gonna fall, he says, your wife will die as a result of it, that you will have to live out your ministry. But he says, don't even weep for her. That as you are not to weep for Jerusalem, display it by not weeping over the death of your wife. And so he is called to be the prophet. Then chapters four through 24, again, you have that judgment against Judah. It is all that prophecy of God in, in poetry, in parables, and just in straight like warnings 
saying judgment is coming upon Judah because you refuse to turn back to me because there is blood in your land and you are worshiping idols in my temple. And so judgment will come. And then the middle section 25 through 32, you have that judgment on the Gentile nations. And then the last section, 33 through 48, it involves that new temple, but part of that new temple is the restoration of God saying, I will come back to my people, that I will bring you back in, that there is hope. Even though he's predicting and prophesying judgment, there's hope in the midst of it. And so the question that I have, that's, that's what we'll cover about the back. Now we're getting kind of more to the application of it all. And so the question that I have through all of this is, well, how did Israel get there? How did Israel get to this point of being God's chosen people, of dwelling in the promised land, of God residing with them, of having the favor of God, receiving the blessings from God, and now they're experiencing the wrath of God? How did Israel get to that moment? And the thing is, is that there was a refusal to stand up for what is right. There was a refusal for Israel to live according to God's standards. There was a refusal to see what God says and to say, okay, I'm going to live according to that. Deuteronomy chapter 28, God says, if you will obey my commands, if you will live within my statutes, it'll go well with you. I'll send my rain. I'll give nations into your hands. There will be peace among you. But if you refuse, if you look at what I say and you say, nah, not today, God, we're going a different way. He says, curses are going to come upon you. And so what happened is it probably wasn't just like all of a sudden we're going to quit. Nobody wakes up thinking today's the day I'm going to ruin my life. Instead, you compromise. You allow a little moment here. Okay, I'll just, I'll just scroll and I'll follow that hashtag for you younger kids. Uh, for you older people, um, it might be like you, as, as Solomon talked about, there's that fool, the young youth that's an idiot pretty much. And he walks along the corner of the prostitute. And next thing he's walking down her road. And next thing she comes out to meet him and she lays a wet one on him and he doesn't turn and run. He stands there and he's like, ooh, seduce me with your speech. It didn't just all of a sudden happen. It was a compromise here and then a compromise there and then a compromise there. And then eventually it led to their downfall. You know, sin is like a cavity. I told you I was a doctor. I didn't tell you I was a dentist as well. Um, but sin is a cavity that it starts with a toothache. And you're like, you know what? That's a little uncomfortable, but I'm not going to deal with it. I don't want to pay the bill for it. I don't want to go see a dentist. I don't want to go get told that something is wrong with me. So I'm just going to try and handle it. I'll take Advil. I'll take Tylenol. I'll take all three. I'll take ibuprofen. I'm good. I'll cover it up. And then you don't take care of it. And then that cavity grows. And now all of a sudden you have an abscessed tooth and you need some serious hardcore removal of that pain. And then if you still don't handle it, you know you can actually die from a cavity. I did not know that. I'm not a dentist. I had no idea that a cavity, something in your tooth, could get infected. It could in, go into your body then and it could lead to your death. That's how sin is. It starts out as this little thing that you think, you know what, I probably struggle with that. It's just how God made me. I don't need to fight it. I don't need to die to it. I don't need to resist it. Instead, I'll just try and cover it up. Nobody will know. It'll be my little precious. 
I won't tell anybody. And then all of a sudden it grows and it becomes more. And you're like, oh my goodness, this is now out of control. And I probably need to get it taken care of. I need to go bring other people in so that they can help me forcefully remove it. But that's going to cost money. It's going to cost pain. It's going to bring on a lot of difficulty to me. So I'm not going to deal with it. And next thing you know, it has killed whatever it's infecting. It's killed your relationship. It's killed your career. It's killed your livelihood. It's killed whatever it is. Nobody, blanket statement, maybe somebody is that crazy. Nobody wakes up and says, I'm going to ruin everything today. I'm done with it all. But instead, it's a little compromise here and there and there. And eventually, it leads to death. This is what James tells us in James chapter 1. He says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. I see it, I want it, it looks good. You know what you do at that moment? You run. You turn around and the Bible says you flee from sexual immorality. You flee from your youthful passions. You flee from the desire for money. You flee from whatever it is that is calling you to be pulled away from God. But that's not what we like to do. We like to hold on to it a little bit more. We like to be like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. So James says, each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You have that slow compromise that gives birth to sin, and then it entangles you, and next thing you know, death has come. And you're like, well, probably not, because I haven't died yet. Give it time, and whatever sin you are dancing with will destroy. It's, it's scriptural. God says that it'll happen. And so what is going on is Judah has compromised. They have not stood firm on God and his word. Instead, they have compromised so much so that God calls them out for not dealing with it. In Ezekiel chapter 22, God says this, starting in verse 3. Thus says the Lord God, a city that sheds blood in her midst so that her time may come and that makes idols to defile herself. There you see some of the sins against Judah. They're allowing bloodshed in their midst and they are defiling idols or making idols that defile them. He says, you have become guilty by the blood that you have shed and defiled by the idols that you have made and you have brought your days near. The appointed time of your years has come. Therefore, I have made you a reproach to the nations and a mockery to all the countries. They compromised and now destruction is coming. And then in verse six, God says, behold, the princes in you, the leaders in you, in, of Israel in you, everyone according to his power have been bent on shedding blood. Father and mother are treated with contempt in you. The sojourner suffers extortion in your midst. The fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. There are men in you who slander to shed blood and people in you who eat on the mountains. They commit lewdness in your midst. 
In you, men uncover their father's nakedness. In you, they violate women who are unclean in their menstrual impurity. One commits abomination with his neighbor's wife. Another lewdly defiles his daughter-in-law. Another in you violates his sister, his father's daughter. In you, they take bribes to shed blood. You take interest and profit and make gain of your neighbors by extortion. But me, you have forgotten, declares the Lord God. That God is saying, this is the crime. And then he goes on to say, the men that are supposed to be watching over you, the men that are supposed to be leading you, aren't any better. In verse 24, he says, son of man, say to her, say to Judah, you are a land that is not cleansed or rained upon in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets, so these are the ones that are supposed to be speaking the word of God. And he says there's a conspiracy among them in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. Her priests. The spiritual leaders now, the ones who are supposed to lead them in uh, sacrificial uh, offerings to God and be the go-betweens for them. He says, the priests have done violence to my law and they profane my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. Her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get honest gain. So even now, the the legal rulers are not leading the way they're supposed to. Her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, thus says the Lord, when the Lord has not spoken. A grave thing to do to say God says this when God does not truly say it. The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice. So here God is saying, you know what? These are the people that are supposed to be leading you and they're not doing it. And so then the very next verse is probably, in my opinion, one of the most heartbreaking verses that you will find, especially in Ezekiel to me. Verse 30, I sought for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found not one, or I found no one, or I found none. That here, God is looking through the land. He is seeing everybody going astray, and he is saying, is there anybody that's going to stand up for what is right? Is there anybody that is going to do justice, that is going to speak truth, that is going to seek after righteousness? Is there anybody that is going to be holy, that is going to set themselves apart from the way everybody else is going and say, this is what is right? Now you have Ezekiel, you have Jeremiah, but they're not the leaders. The leaders of the nation are going astray, and I would say a majority of the people are following you have a small majority that is, not, that is standing up for what is right, and you have everybody else that is standing against God. And he's saying, I'm looking. Please let there be somebody who will stand up on behalf of the land, on behalf of my people, so that I don't have to send my judgment out upon it. And he says, I couldn't find one. 
He goes on to say in Ezekiel chapter 14, he says, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut off from it man and beast. If even these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, three righteous men, if even these three men were in it, they would deliver their own lives, but not the land. They would deliver their own lives by their righteousness, but they would not save the land. Because what God is saying is, I'm looking for somebody, but the thing is, there's nobody. That even if like the three really righteous guys, Job, Noah, and Daniel, were to be in this land, they would be spared, but the rest of the land would not be spared. And so I want to transition right now. Do you realize we're talking about Judah, but we're also not talking about Judah? That we're talking about us? That we are talking about our lives? That God is saying, I looked for somebody who would stand between me and a sinful people so that I would not have to execute my wrath against that people, mankind. I looked for somebody who would be able to be the go-between, who would be perfect, sinless, without fault. I looked, but I could not find any. That he never found one. So you know what God did? He did what only God could do. He sent his son to be that man. He sent his son to stand in the gap for us. God did what we couldn't do. He's like, where's the person that's going to stand up on behalf of the land? Who Where's the person that's going to stand up on behalf of this people so that I don't have to just execute my wrath upon them? And he says, I can't find one. And so then in chapter 34, starting in verse 11, notice the times that God says, I will. Because God says, there's nobody, so I will be the one that steps down there. I will be the one that does these things. He says, behold, I I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick, and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from peoples and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture, pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat of the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Now what God is saying is I looked for somebody, but I found none. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take matters into my own hand. I'm going to send my son in sinful likeness to become sin for us, even though he never sinned. He took on our sin so that now we could be re in reconnection with God. Romans chapter 3, 8 says this. God has done what the law 
weakened by the flesh. The law says be perfect. How many of you have done that? I know you're just being shy. Yeah, nobody. It has, nobody has been perfect. So God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. God said, I gave them the law. And Paul says, well, all the law did was show me how bad I really was. It showed me what coveting really is. And so then I realized, actually, I covet all the time. It showed me what lusting is. And so actually I realized I lust all the time. I lie all the time. I steal all the time. I cheat. I commit murder, as Jesus says, because I'm angry in my heart towards people. The law came to show me that I can't meet that standard. So who's going to be able to stand in that gap between eternal wrath for us and righteousness of God? Because on my own, I never can. God sent Jesus to be righteousness for us. Jesus also came on his own. John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. He says, this charge I have received from my father. He says, I am giving my life for you. There's this gap, nobody can cross it. Jesus says, I will come and I will stand in the gap. I will give my life. And so that's what we're gonna do now. Because at the moment of what looked like the weakest moment in history possibly. Here you have Jesus and he's, he's saying he's the Messiah, the one that Israel has been looking for this entire time. And he's saying, I am the one the prophets talk about. I am the one that Moses pointed to. I am the one that has come to set captives free, to give the lame the ability to walk, the blind sight, the mute the ability to speak. He says, I am the one, I am the Messiah. And everybody's like, he's the Messiah. He's the political leader that is going to lead the revolt against all our enemies and establish Israel as the reigning kingdom on earth. And then what's the next thing that happens to him? He's betrayed. He's abandoned by his closest friends. And then he goes on trial. And through that, he doesn't utter but five sentences hardly. He doesn't take up a defense for himself. He doesn't call down the legion of angels to come and wipe everybody out. Instead, if you were watching at that time, you might think the guy's a pushover, the guy is weak. But what we see today is it is the greatest fight that went on. And so what I want you to do is I want you to take the bread. We're gonna partake in communion now and I want you to hold it and just look at it. I mean, here's this little square cracker. A lot of times we think, man, that doesn't even taste really good. But I want you to picture Jesus as in Luke chapter 22, verse 19. He says, he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. That this represents Jesus' body going through the floggings, going through the, the plucking of the hair, going through the crown put on his head, going through the cat of nine tails, the 40 lashes minus one, going through what would kill most people. And then on top of that, taking a beam on his back and carrying it, being nailed to it, being broken. And he did it. What looked like weakness was Jesus fighting on your behalf, saying, there's nobody that will stand in the gap. I will stand in the gap. I will take the pain that they were supposed to take. I will take the beating. I will take the torment. I will take the humiliation. Above it all, he said, I will take the wrath of God. He's prayed three times on the night that he was to be betrayed. Father, if there be any way possible, let this cup, the cup of your wrath, be removed from me. And then he says, but not my will, but your will be done. This is the only way. This bread, this little cracker, represents so much more. It is Jesus fighting for your relationship with God. It is him breaking his body for you because he loves you go ahead and take the bread in remembrance of what jesus has done for you go ahead and take the juice and again welch's good brand means so much more this is the juice that represents the blood that Jesus poured out. Luke chapter 22, verse 20, Jesus says, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, he said, this cup is poured out for you. It is the new covenant of my blood. That it's no longer the law. It's not based on how, how well are you guys doing on keeping the 10 commandments? Pretty good today? Give it an hour. That it's not based on how well you can keep it. It's based on this. That God did what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. He sent his son in the form of sin so that we take on the righteousness of God because of this right here. Jesus shedding his blood, ushering in a new covenant. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, it tells us, if you've already taken it, I get it, I didn't say anything. But if you haven't, think about this. If you have, think about it still. He entered once and for all, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. It says, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Then verse 14 of chapter 10, for by a single offering, we don't come and we don't pray to me. We don't pray to a father. We pray to the heavenly father because for a single offering, once and for all, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Because of this, verse 19 says, you have confidence. You have confidence to enter the holy place. You can go directly to God because of what Jesus did. As you take it, remember 
the sacrifice that Jesus made. His blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of him. Now we got an exciting thing as well today. Told you, give me a week off, man, things are going to change. Don't worry, we'll be back to routine next week. But Isaac Zom has been begging his father that he could be baptized. He's, he's given his life to Christ. He has had that stirring in his heart. He's placed his faith in God. He is saved. And he's like, I want to show the people. I want to be obedient to Jesus in baptism. And so that's what we're going to do right now. As we remember what Christ has done, Isaac is going to demonstrate what Christ has done in his heart through water baptism. So I'm going to give it over to Kurt. About three weeks ago, whenever he came to me and told me he wanted to be baptized, and I had questions, and I asked some questions, and then I wanted to go over some scripture with him. So over the next few weeks, he just keeps asking me, Dad, when am I going to get baptized? Waiting on me. And I'm happy to say this morning we get to do that. He's given his life to Jesus, and he wants to claim him as his Savior. So I'll ask you, Isaac, to repeat after me. I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and my personal Lord and Savior. baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with him in baptism and raised to newness of life. 